church, if you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 24. This will be the last time that I tell you to turn to chapter 1 of Romans for some time. I'm sure I'll reference back at some point, so don't get too uh, teary-eyed just yet. Nonetheless, we, uh, I want to remind you that, uh, just as I did at the beginning of last Sunday's service, that today's text is particularly pointed in uh, several ways, but in a particular way, it, it highlights something that is emblematic of the idolatry that is in all of us, that being homosexuality. And so I gave a warning at the beginning of last Sunday's sermon that if we have any parents that maybe you're not ready to tackle difficult uh, conversations or questions with your children, uh, I've talked to Mary and her and Victoria are ready and willing to uh, take any children that maybe want that you want to step out during the sermon portion of this Sunday service, uh, and they'll have a special childcare time for them today uh, only. So if that's you, you can uh, just make your way out to the back with your child, which it looks like no one is. So Mary and Victoria, it looks like y'all are good to come back in. Uh, nonetheless, uh, when I was a senior in high school, we took a class trip to the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library in College Station. Uh, it was a really neat experience. It's a great little presidential library. Um, but, and I, I didn't fully appreciate that experience uh, as a high school kid, uh, believe it or not. Uh, however, in the museum, there's a large section of the Berlin Wall that you can go and you can see and if you're adventurous, you can even reach out and touch it, even though it says not to. Uh, nonetheless, I remember standing there at the Berlin Wall and looking um, as an immature and ignorant uh, high school kid, ignorant to history, ignorant to, you know, kind of all that this was emblematic of. And, and I remember not really being impressed or, you know, uh, stirred to any emotion I just simply kind of was like, oh, that's, that's neat, you know, kind of knew of the Berlin Wall, didn't really know everything that went into that moment in history and all that it represented. But standing next to me was my high school, she was actually my junior English teacher, uh, who actually came on the trip also as a sponsor, I, was, I remember, again, I was a senior at this time, and it was Miss Hippler, and uh, Miss Hippler was struggling to hold back tears standing there at the Berlin Wall. And I remember standing there in that moment as, you know, kind of, I was kind of like, oh yeah, you know, just kind of haphazardly approaching the, the moment and, and the situation and everything. And I remember standing there looking at Miss Hippler and seeing her holding back tears remember, and thinking, I'm missing something here because this is clearly moving her in a way that is, is not me. I've since learned a lot more about the significance of the Berlin Wall and how it didn't just represent the separation of land, but how its fall represented the fall of communism and the freedom for those living in West Berlin. And Ms. Hippler kind of talked about and detailed her experience of, of watching that moment with her dad and all that that represented for her. So this morning... 
I want us, and I tell you that story because we're going to see how starting in verse 18 and for the last three weeks as we've been walking through this second half of this portion of Romans 1, we've been uncovering the building of this, this giant wall that's been built up between God and man. And today kind of marks the culmination of us completely uncovering this giant wall that separates God and man. And we're also going to see in the culmination here this morning of what God has done about that wall. Because the temptation that comes with this morning's passage is to look outwardly in judgment of the blatant sinfulness of our world and culture. If we're not careful, a lot of us can be like high school Blake, standing before the Berlin Wall, focused on the wrong thing and completely missing the point. I want us to be challenged this morning to look inwardly at the sinfulness of our own heart and then to look upward in praise of the glorious grace of God to redeem sinners such as ourselves. Because that's what's at stake this morning. Is as all of us walk away, I want us not to be focused on the chasm or the wall that stands between us and God, but I want us all to walk away this morning absolutely wrecked at the grace of God in Christ. So with that, I want you to encourage you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's word as we read our text for this morning, which is Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of God. God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you this morning and we thoroughly examine the idolatry that lie within the hearts of all mankind, I pray that you would, by the discerning light of your word, Give us the necessary discernment to call sin for what it is, 
to identify sin within our own hearts, to identify the idolatry within our own hearts, to be moved in repentance and to see the overwhelming grace which you have shown us in Christ and to see the goodness of your gospel, the power which you have shown unto salvation and to be moved accordingly. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So, last week as we looked at verses 18 through 23, and then the week before we looked at simply verse 18 alone, seeing the revealed wrath of God and seeing how God has made knowledge of himself plainly evident in all creation so that none are without an excuse. What we also saw is that the only proper response to the knowledge of God, which he has given of himself, is worship. It's to worship the one true creator God who has made himself known, graciously made himself known. Not just in creation, but graciously made himself known evidently in his word. That the only proper response to that is to worship him. And then we wanted to clearly outline and identify that God's wrath is kindled because the worship of man is not. That all of us knowingly, willfully do not worship God rightly. Therefore, God's wrath has been kindled against man. We also outlined how the revealed wrath of God is itself a grace of God. That he would make his wrath known to us that we might respond accordingly. And yet many of the hearts of man follow that wide path which leads to destruction. Why? Because they don't care. That God has plainly and evidently made himself known, declared who he is, and that he is deserving of worship. But the heart of man does not care. Therefore, something miraculous has to happen in our hearts to bring us to worship of God. And we're going to thoroughly outline how he has done that today. But first, we need to analyze some continuing four statements. You'll remember, I showed Kimber's poster last week. Here's this word again, four, right? So we begin our text for this morning here in verse 24, as we've had this volley of four statements going on from, eight, from 18 onwards, and then now we pick back up in verse 24 this morning, and what is the first word we have? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. This is what we've been building toward in the latter half of this chapter, a glaringly raw look at what the results of two things are. We've been looking at the results of two things. The natural desires of the human heart, which we clearly outlined last week, is to worship self over God, and the revealed wrath of God against such naturally evil desires. Now, what's our therefore here? 
What is it therefore? This points us back to the immediately preceding verses that we ended with last week. Verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, here we see that we have all engaged, rather, in this darkened exchange. You see, it talks about the darkness of their hearts. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, and they were futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So in the darkness of our hearts, we've engaged in this darkened exchange. You see in verse 21 that our complicit denial of God, our hearts have been darkened. And what does our darkened heart do? We engage in this dark exchange, idolatry. We exchange the glory due to our creator God and swap out God for some object. Now, idolatry looks much different for us today than it did in ancient times. But the root of idolatry is still there. It's to trust in, to devote ourselves, or to listen to something other than God. It doesn't have to be metal or wood or stone for it to be an idol. We make idols out of money, jobs, friends, sex, our children, our spouse. All of this in service to the greatest idol of all, which we continually build up ourselves. Prideful idolatry is the root cause of our sinfulness. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. This is the revealed wrath of God. You want a desperate verse that reveals the wrath of God. Because maybe to this point you haven't quite clearly seen how we've been outlining how God has revealed his wrath. Well, Paul gives us that right here. We exchange the worship of God for the worship of what God has made. And how has God revealed his wrath against such? With fire and brimstone, with fire consuming those who engage in such acts with the earth just opening up and swallowing those who engage in idolatry, he hands man over to the lusts of our hearts. This is the wrath of God that we have seen revealed in our world. I know all of us can consistently look to the culture and the world that we live in and say that we are just dumbfounded at the willful engaging in what is so blatantly wrong. And this, my friends, that confounds us is clearly what we see here, the revealed wrath of God, that he has handed us over to such. They don't know it's wrong because in their minds it's right. We continue in verse 24 there. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 
So we dishonor God by subverting the created order. Therefore, God has given us over to dishonor. We exchange the worship of God for the worship of what God has made. And we're going to see this phrase pop up two more times. So three times here in verses 24 through 32, we see this phrase, God gave them up or handed them over. It's all the same phrasing there. But three times in this morning's text, we read, God gave them up. And here's what that's going to reveal to us, is a heartbreaking reality of the revealed wrath of God. The more things change, the more they stay the same. We say this phrase from time to time, and the older we get, the more we realize how true that statement is. And if it seems like every week we're pointed back to the garden, back to the first three chapters of Genesis, it's because we are. Paul wants his audience to see the unmistakable connection between human action in the present day and the fallenness of man. So if consistently the language here is eerily similar to the language that we see of the exchange made in the garden, it's purposeful. This is what it means to have a biblical worldview, to see the truths of God's word and for those to be the lens through which we see and understand the world around us. So you want to see God's revealed wrath. Look to the world. Because as we see the clear sinfulness of man and we then look out into the world and we're just dumbfounded at how consistently cyclical, sinful our world and culture is and how it's the giving up of the self over and over and over again to such actions which lead constantly to a pit of despair and never lead to the promises of satisfaction and joy that it promises. It's a creature worshiping the created, fulfilling the lusts of their heart. You see, we can see this here and then clearly see it play out there, but we also need to see how it plays out here. The total depravity of our world is totally owed to the total depravity of man. No amount of laws will fix it. No amount of good charitable work will fix it. No one world leader or the other can lead the charge to fixing this issue. In his wrath, God has handed us over to the sinful lusts of our hearts. So what does this mean? It means that we are the ones who built the wall between us and God. Do you see that? That it's not as if God said that he would do it. We are the ones who built the wall. And not only that, but we're the ones who in the works of our flesh continue to build it higher and wider. Thicker and thicker, willingly, gleefully, so that on our own we are continually separating ourselves from God. So what is the answer? We'll get to that here in just a minute. But first I want to continue our walk through the text to see just how 
dark this wall causes the world around us to be. Lest we be tempted to think that we can use this as some sort of self-justification text. I want to remind you of two passages that make our make clear our complicity in this evil. We've seen the complicity so far. I want to show you elsewhere in the New Testament how we see our complicity in this evil. We who have been saved by the grace of God are so tempted to be self-righteous in our justification, it's not even funny. We'll look at a list of sins and fleshly indulgences in the Bible, and our immediate thought is towards others. We immediately place ourselves on the outside of that group and inside whatever self-righteous group we want to be in. I want to encourage you to look to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to come back to Ephesians chapter 2 a little later on. But I I want you to look here to Ephesians 2. We're going to look at just the first three verses. Where Paul, of course, this is a well-known verse that we reference frequently and for good reason. But Paul says here, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. So this revealed wrath of God in our sinfulness, we not only willingly indulged in it, but we gleefully didn't follow just ourselves, but in doing so, we were gleefully and willingly following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. And now lest you put yourself on some outside thinking that this text is simply talking about people who have done sins other than the ones that you have done or the ones that you struggle with, we all need to read verse 3. Of Ephesians 2, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Those very passions, those very indulgences of the heart, which God in his wrath has handed us over to, we all lived in those passions, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So there's a warning there for what comes natural in our sinful flesh. We'll get to some of those markers here in just a little bit. I want to turn again, I want to point you again to another verse, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here, as Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, he's talking about the judgment that comes with Christ's second coming. If you'll remember, as we talked about verse 18, we talked about the revealed wrath of God, how it's revealed itself in three folds. We see God's wrath revealed on the cross. We see God's wrath revealed in the present day. And God's wrath revealed in the cross is a foretaste of what awaits those who have not submitted to it in the last day. So now here we look to chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. And as Paul is warning the church at Thessalonica about the evidences of God's judgment against sin that come at Christ's coming, he talks about this man of lawlessness. This same prince of the power of the air that we looked at in Ephesians 2. Nonetheless, let's pick up here 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, 
not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he wants to warn them not to be afraid or shaken that the day of the Lord has come, but he wants to give them uh, clear markers that will build up to that coming day of the Lord so that they don't have to be just anxiously awaiting, as we talked about at the, toward the end of our look through the Bible last year, that our job is not to be just anxiously waiting and wondering and watching, but to be about the Father's work and to stay awake. And so he goes on to say here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, skip down to verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to, so this is, speaking past tense about the coming of Christ and the judgment of Christ and the works of Satan, that those who are perishing did what in the life in which they lived prior to that time? They refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. So this handing over that we're seeing here, we're going to continue to see in Romans 1. This is this strong delusion. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth that had pleasure in, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Oh, that we would feel the awesome weight of sin here in Romans and throughout the rest of what we just read right there. So if you sit here this morning in unrepentant, self-indulgent sin, then please hear me. What you are doing seems right and natural and satisfying, but you are under the wrath of God having been handed over to your evil desires as all of us at one point were. So if you sit here this morning under the grace of Christ, give thanks for that. Proverbs chapter 14 gives us wisdom in this sense. Proverbs 14, starting in verse 1, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. You go on to verse 11 of Proverbs 14. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, Verse 12, but its end is the way to death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. Don't miss that one. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. Even what seems right and joyous and thrill-giving and enjoyable at the time may be aching to the heart because it is ultimately ending in the way that is to death. Verse 14 of Proverbs 14, the backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his 
ways. Of course, how do we find that good way? How do we be that good man or woman? Maybe you've wondered to this point, how has God revealed his wrath presently and how does that show itself out in our world? When our mind conjures up examples of God's wrath displayed, we think of supernatural displays. Again, as I said earlier, floods, plagues, fire, all of this, all of which are biblical examples for God's wrath. However, more often than not, one of the primary examples that we see of God's wrath displayed and his judgment given is the simple yet terrifying resignation of his presence. What we need to know is that the darkened heart of man lusts only for impurity. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The sheer amount of of an obsession with sexually deviant behavior, material propaganda that we are bombarded with as we look out into our world should highlight this reality for us. All of us who are married can attest to the unrealistic and twisted way in which the marriage relationship is displayed and acted out in our culture. Why can we look at that and tell it's wrong? Because we've realized the right manner in which God has designed the home. But in his wrath, God has handed over our world to the lust of the heart for impurity and impurity alone. The emphasis here needs to be once again on the handed over to what we naturally want and desire. He has simply withdrawn his presence and given sinful man what they desire, which is clearly and evidently not him, even though he has clearly and evidently made himself known. Our willing exchange of God's glory has left us morally bankrupt and blinded to the graces of God. Because our heart is insatiably lustful, when we taste the false joys of this world, we become blinded in sin to the true joy that lay within Christ. Therefore, we need a mediator between us and God. We need someone to plead our case on our behalf. I want to show you this coming from Judges chapter 2. I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This comes at a time, of course, after Moses has died, in which Joshua was raised up because he had followed along with Moses and learned at the feet of the first mediator of the covenant. And so Joshua becomes the mediator of the covenant, the leader of the people. But then we read this, Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. 
And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So let's pause there. So what is happening in this moment? The angel of the Lord comes down and he reveals that their task given through Moses and through Joshua both, was that they were to take the promised land, rid it of all the foreign gods, all the pagan nations, and destroy all of these idols. And they take the land and they allow many of these nations to remain because they're not bothering them. They're like, well, they're not bothering us. We'll just leave them over there. And so the Lord comes to them here and says in verse 3, so now I say, because they did not obey, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. So because you did not obey, I've been the one who's been leading the charge for you, giving you victory over these peoples for the purpose of my great name. And so now the Lord says, because you have not obeyed, I will not give you victory. And not only that, because you have allowed these people to stand and remain, their gods will be a snare to you. You will fall prey to the lusts of your heart, in other words. We skip down to verse 10 of chapter 2 of Judges. And this is where we read that in all that generation also were gathered to their father. So Joshua dies and then the generation after him comes up and all that generation were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So Joshua dies and there's no more covenant mediator, no more leader to not only go before the Lord on behalf of the people, but to constantly keep the Lord before the people. And so what do we go on to see in the book of Judges? In those days, there was no king and everyone did what seemed right to them. They followed the lusts of their heart. This is not just a problem of our current day. This is not just a problem of our current culture. This is the sinfulness and the nature of man since the fall. Back to Romans chapter 1. We pick back up in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So notice between verse 23 and 25, there's an idolatrous exchange which takes place in the human heart, which leads us to be under the wrath of God in our sinfulness. The source of our idolatry is the distortion of truth. So we exchange the glory of God and give that glory to ourselves. We give it to idols. We give it to money. We give it to our kids. We give it to success, jobs. The source of our idolatry, though, is the distortion of truth. So the darkened heart of man lusts only for impurity. We've exchanged God's glory. And so what is the source of of this idolatry is that we have distorted the truth 
in our hearts. Our idolatry is what kindled God's wrath to hand us over. So how does idolatry happen? We distort the truth of God's rule. We distort the truth of God's reign. We distort the truth of God's goodness and his created order for our own good. The question we must ask ourselves is what truth am I submitting to? A distorted half-truth from the lusts of our hearts? Or the truth, the revealed truth, the self-revelatory truth of God's word? Test your truth with the truth, which stands the test of time. So don't miss Paul's doxology there either. So in discussing this, we see, therefore, God has given them up in the lust of their hearts because they exchanged the truth about God. So this is the second darkened exchange that he talks about. We saw the first darkened exchange last week. We see the second darkened exchange here. And serve the creature rather than the creator. And then Paul gives this doxology, who is blessed forever. Amen. So don't don't skip over that part of this. It's just come sort of half-hearted amen at the end of a pre-meal prayer. The most fundamental truth of Genesis, the most fundamental truth of the universe, of our cosmos, is that there exists a creator God and he is worthy of all our praise, glory, and devotion. Paul couldn't let this exhortation go by without himself exclaiming and worshiping to the one who deserves it, the praise of God. And when we abandon the truth, the path goes dark. This might seem like just a simple little who is blessed forever, amen. But Paul, in this exhortation, wants us to see how not only should we ourselves be able to look to creation, look to the truth, and respond in right worship of God, but also in seeing the lack of worship amongst our culture, amongst the world, we should be moved to a deeper and more profound sense of worship for what God has graciously revealed to us. Because when we abandon the truth, the path goes dark. When the truth of God's word offends us and causes us to recoil, something is wrong and needs to be fixed quickly. We stand under Scripture as our authority, not the other way around. So when Scripture goes against our hearts, it's not the Scripture that needs to be circumcised. It's our hearts. And this has always been the call of God's people, of God's word, is not simply to do a list of moral good, but to wholly submit to God in all things. So we saw there that example in Judges, that they were given a command, they were given the law. Deuteronomy, that's Moses on the plains of Moab getting ready to send them off before he dies, and he recites to them the law so that they will remember it. And again, we think, well, surely they've got the law, so they'll do everything right now, right? But the whole purpose of the law is not to simply take a stony heart of flesh and to just try harder and do better 
and do more good than you do bad. But it's that in order to do the law rightly, your heart has to be exchanged. The circumcision has to be of the heart first and foremost. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30. So this precedes what we read there in Judges where there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 1. So this is after Moses has read all the covenant blessings and curses, that if you follow God's law, these are the blessings. If you fail to do so, these are the curses. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So first he says that they're going to not obey and they're going to be scattered, but the Lord is going to bring them back. Verse four, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possess, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So as long as we are living under the power and the strength and the knowledge of our own heart at the core of our being, we will fail and we will go to a foreign land and we will allow the, land, the idols of the land to remain standing and we will succumb to them because they will be a snare to us. But if we submit to the Lord and allow Him to do as He has drawn us to do, then He is the one who will circumcise our hearts. We cannot do it on our own. We must submit to His drawing. And in His drawing, He brings us to Him, gives us new hearts that we may be able to walk according to His law and glorify His name in the land. So I want to give us three challenges for when our hearts are tempted to stray. Because we see here that God has given them up in the lust. The them there, don't just constantly think of the them as someone else. That in our fleshfulness, God has given over our world to the lust of its hearts and to the impurity and dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And I want to give three challenges for when our hearts are tempted to stray. Because even as we submit to God's ways and He gives us a new heart, we are still living in a world that is darkened by sin in this darkened exchange. So first, is what I'm pursuing setting me up to honor God's glory and creation or am I subverting God's created order for my own? So that's the first question to ask ourselves. Is what I'm pursuing setting me up to honor God's glory and creation or am I subverting God's created order for my own? Number two, is what I'm pursuing based off of God's revelation of himself or am I simply acting on my own natural inclinations? 
Because as we've already established, the heart of man lusts only for impurity. Am I setting myself up as the ultimate source of my own happiness? How do we do this? We do this by setting money up as our ultimate need and motivation. Then we continue this by making ourselves out to be the only ones who could provide us with, I just need to work harder. I just need to work more. I just need to do more, do better. Who gets the glory when the money comes in that way? We do. The third one, where is my source of truth? What voices am I listening to? Am I only listening to friends or coworkers and others who always seem to be so full of wisdom but never in much better position than us? Am I pursuing the same dark exchanges that all the world pursues? Or am I rightly ordering my life to where I am giving honor and glory to the one true creator, God, who is blessed forever? Amen. When you're tempted by half-truths and distortions, when you're pulled from the path of truth, realize that you have exchanged the glory of God and cry out in worship. We pick up now in verse 26 here of Romans 1. And here we see our second, God handed them over. And this is where we see things get very pointed in this darkened exchange. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. We're going to pause right there. Notice the subtlety there in the detail. Dishonorable passions. Back in verse 24, we have the lusts of the heart. So we need to be able to realize and recognize and discern that we dishonor our bodies and God's created order with passions that seem right. The passions are there and they may seem like there's something for us to be acted on. But when we do what seems right in our own heart, we dishonor our bodies and God's created order. Well, if God didn't want me to indulge in it, why did he create me with these passions? God may have created you with the passions, but the sin within your flesh has distorted those passions and distorted the truth into lusts of the heart. So you need to submit to your creator, not your passions. But here in verses 26 through 27, we get a very specific example of how these passions have become distorted and dishonorable and how that plays itself out in the world. We continue reading. For this reason, God gave them up in the dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, there's a few arguments here against this of our day that I want to address because I think they need to be addressed because we will hear them in our world, but I don't want to spend too much time on them. But nonetheless, here, the common progressive argument for how to avoid this in the Bible because it seems plain and clear for us, because it is, but yet there will be those who try to claim some form of Christianity, but avoid the reality of what we see here. 
And the common progressive argument for how to avoid this in the Bible, arguments from the likes of Andy Stanley and such, that when the Bible condemns homosexual activity, it's not technically talking about a loving and committed homosexual marriage is an argument that you'll hear. Another argument you'll hear is, well, the Bible doesn't even actually have the word homosexual in Greek, so that what that was purposefully added. Now, just a little language lesson here. So there is no English to Greek equivalent for homosexuality or vice versa. So you know what it says in the Greek? Malakoi ute arsenokoitai. Arsenokoitai. There we go. Which is men who bed with men. In other words, we translate that into English as homosexuality. So there's a little English lesson, a little language lesson. Or another is that this describes heterosexuals engaging in homosexual behavior. So that's why it's wrong. And so this is where the modern believers will place upon themselves this alternate, try to do this hermeneutic backflipping and switching to try to make it say what a modern acceptable message would be. When the reality of what we see here is that Homosexuality is emblematic of idolatry in that it subverts the created order in which God has clearly set how he has created the relationship between man and woman to be, and homosexual, homosexual activity subverts that for the lusts of the heart, lusts that have been corrupted by the distortion of truth. Now, this is where modern believers will also place themselves upon a hill that overlooks those who struggle with homosexuality and say to ourselves, thank God I'm not like one of them. But brothers and sisters, you miss the point of what Paul and what the Lord is doing in handing over those to homosexuality and how Paul is highlighting it here that distorted truth leads to a distorted life homosexuality serves as a stark reminder of the idolatry of the human heart and the wrath of God in handing mankind over to our sinful desires this is oftentimes why I think we react so strongly toward this particular sin because it's such a striking display of the idolatry of man. And again, it's emblematic of the idolatry within us all. We pick up in verse 28, because we see that this highlights, we see just how this highlights this idolatry and how it's emblematic for the idolatry within us all. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, which none of us have done in our fleshly nature, we've established that in verses 18 through 23, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. So, we continue. 
verse 29, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, none of that is isolated to those who practice homosexuality. Which again, is why this is being set up as the emblem of all of this idolatrous activity. That this is wrong and it emblemizes, that's not the word. It creates an emblem of how this idolatry is present within all of us. The condition of our culture is a product of God's wrath. And God's wrath is kindled because the worship of man is not. And the condition of our culture is a product of God's wrath and handing our culture over to the condition of our culture. You see how that works there? All of this ought to move us to weep. That we can't help but look around and see the utter depravity of our world. To see the wrath of God against such unfettered sinfulness and see how God has withdrawn his presence and given sinful man over to its unfettered sinful desires. But here's what this also ought to do. And if you get nothing else away from what I've said this morning, pay attention here. Is that as we look to the utter depravity of our world, not only ought this to move us to weep because of the sinful condition, but this ought to move us in mission and cause us to cry out, have mercy, Lord. Why include all of this in a monologue about the glorious gospel of God in Christ Jesus? I mean, really, this isn't going to draw crowds. This isn't going to make people feel good. So where did all this start? How did all this start in Paul's argument? It started in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. So how does all this serve that argument? What good could this possibly serve the church to build up such a towering wall between us and God, to show this towering wall between us and God and highlight God's wrath in showing that we are the ones who built the wall? When we understand the utter depravity of man and God's just wrath against sin, God's grace in Christ is infinitely magnified and the truth of the gospel redeems. Church, let this be what you see here. 
I've purposefully kind of emphasized, in, according to the text, everything that we see here, as the text says, emphasize the utter depravity of man and God's wrath in handing us over to it. But why does Paul build it up this way? May we not be tempted to look out in judgment upon the sins of others, but may we be moved to overwhelming praise that by his gracious, loving kindness in Christ, God has called us to himself that we might be shining torches of his grace in a darkened world. Don't you dare allow yourself to sit there in self-righteous piety this morning because that is a major temptation with these verses. But may we all sit here today bewildered at the grace of God and Christ to draw us to himself despite all of this. Despite this great chasm, despite this great wall that we have built up. May we sit here today with an abounding hope that the loved one, the neighbor, the friend, the son, the daughter, the one who's entrapped in their own sinfulness, who is continuing to build up this wall eagerly between them and God. May we sit here today in hope, knowing that the gospel is powerful enough to save them. When we better understand the depravity of man, the urgency of missions becomes all the clearer. And not only that, the power of the gospel to compel us in gospel boldness becomes clearly evident. Again, I point you back to verse 16. For I am not the shame of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So why set all of this up? Why in why emphasize the wrath of God revealed? Why emphasize how God's wrath has been revealed and the withdrawing of his presence and the handing of man over to the sinful lusts of the heart? Because it shows how powerful the gospel is to overcome all of that. I told you earlier, we come back to Ephesians chapter 2. You thought I'd forgotten. Let's go back to Ephesians 2. And we left off in verse 3. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So, all of this, the gospel is infinitely powerful enough to overcome every bit of this. How do we know that? Because we're sitting here as examples of that grace. Because you go on reading in Ephesians 2, picking back up in verse 6, you raised us up 
with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that he might lift us up as trophies, as shining torches of his grace in the darkness of this darkened exchange just happening over and over and over again. Just as people go to the stock exchange every day to hope to to infinitely increase their wealth. The heart of man infinitely goes to the exchange of the world, hoping to infinitely increase its joy, constantly finding nothing but despair. And the gospel comes in like a shining light in the darkness. And overcomes all of that. I'm unashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We who have been saved by the grace of God are beacons of his grace and heralds of his gospel amidst the darkness. So how should this text move us? It should move us at the overwhelming power of God as displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he could rescue us from all of this. And it should move us at the overwhelming grace of the gospel that we would choose to live in such a state that there are those who willingly fly in the face of God and indulgently live in such a state that God has yet to save, but is drawing them to himself by his grace. And he's called us to carry that torch of the gospel of his grace, to talk of his mercy and grace to us, that we would be compelled forward in gospel boldness so that we would shine this powerful gospel in the darkness of the night. I want to point you back even further in Romans 1. So we see that there in verse 16. But this is the very thing that Paul has laid the foundation of this letter on. Going back to verses 1 through 5, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who is descended from David, this providential gospel, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. This is our hope. That the gospel is powerful enough to take anyone who struggles with homosexuality or anything within that list of idolatry and idolatrous sinfulness. The gospel is the power to bring anyone, to bring about in anyone the obedience of faith whom God chooses. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Then don't for one second allow yourself to misread this text as if sin has the ultimate power. In Christ, God can redeem anyone whom he chooses for the display of his glorious grace. So guess what? I don't get to boast about my salvation. I don't get to boast about my sanctification. I don't get to boast about my good works. So what do I get to boast about? 
the overwhelming grace of God to save a sinner like me, who like the rest of mankind was darkened in their understanding, hated God, did not want to honor him, and whose flesh still attempts to do so, but were it not for the grace of God. This is what God can do for you. Take you from the darkened, idolatry-ridden state and bring you into the light of the gospel. And this is the final element I want to emphasize here because I hear far too many well-meaning Christians who know they've been saved by God's grace, who desire for God to be glorified in their lives, who are seeking to walk that narrow, well-lit path of truth, and yet who will go on and on about what a wretch they are. And here's why I make this point. When we, who are redeemed, boast more in the wretchedness of our flesh than in the grace of God to save us from it, we belittle the grace of God, however unintentional it may be. Because if you're still living in unrepentant sin and still living in that wretchedness, now we've got something to talk about because you're not truly redeemed by the grace of God, right? But we need to emphasize here, such were some of you. The wretch who we were is not who we are in Christ. Therefore, we boast in God's grace in Christ. Our covenant mediator is alive and reigning at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf, having brought us from death to life and sent us out as ambassadors of this gospel to the nations. So let us live, breathe, and talk like it. Let us boast of the grace of God to bring us from death to life. And boast that we are alive now in God's grace, by God's grace, for God's glory. And may that be our emphasis, that we were dead but are now alive in Christ. And finally, if you are still dead in your trespasses and sins, this is the grace that has the power to bring you to life today. Let's pray, church. God, we love you. As we come before you, humbled in this moment, I pray that each of us would be right now overwhelmed at your grace to us in the gospel. For those of us who are saved, Lord, I pray that this would result in a greater humility and ongoing repentance in our sanctification, that it would result in a greater gospel boldness, a greater unashamedness of the gospel, to boast of your glorious grace in Christ and in nothing else. And God, I pray for those who may hear this, who may still be lost in the lusts of the heart. God, that you would draw them to yourself, bring them to repentance unto salvation in Christ, that they too 
may join us as trophies, as torches of your grace to be carried out into a dark and dying world. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.